Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series that we're doing on the book of Acts. We are, by the grace of God, hoping to study all 28 chapters in this marvelous uh, church history that has been left for us, thanks to the gospel writer Luke. And as always, I want to mention, if we have anyone new with us, that all of these studies are recorded, and the notes for all of the studies are also made available through a number of uh, sources. You can go to our church website at new-life-ministries.org and find both the notes and the recordings. You can also go to mixlr.com and either listen live online as we are doing the studies or come back at a later time and listen to the recordings that remain there also at that website. Uh, a third way, which is uh, much easier if you're able to do it, uh, if you have a smartphone or other device that can receive podcasts, you can subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast, and you will automatically get any updates, both recordings and notes, as they are added. So lots of ways to be following along with us, even if you may not be able to come on the phone or online when we're doing it live. You can always come back later and catch whatever you've missed. All right, we are now in part six of what will be 12 parts in this series. Uh, we just introduced uh, this new part last time, and this is an extremely interesting and I think important section in the book of Acts for a number of reasons. Uh, as we mentioned last time, this is the transition of the early church from Jerusalem outward to Judea and Samaria and then eventually to the ends of the earth. And um, we emphasized last time that it would seem that the Jews in the early church in Jerusalem, they were a lot like you and me. They tend to become comfortable they sort of settled down in Jerusalem, and historians tell us it was probably about ten years that had elapsed since the day of Pentecost, and these Jewish believers uh, were not really too willing to follow the outline and the plan given them in Acts 1.8, and that was Jerusalem, don't stop there, be witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and then witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, God has his ways, and after the death of Stephen, the first martyr in the early church at the end of Acts 7, we learned that a great persecution broke out that very day. Scriptures are very clear. On that day, the day of Stephen's death, a great persecution broke out against the church. And Saul begins to take center stage. We know him better as the Apostle Paul, but Saul of Tarsus is seemingly at the helm of this great persecution, and like a madman, 
He seems to be on a mission to destroy the church. But as we see throughout the scriptures, whenever opposition and persecution comes against God's people, designed, of course, to destroy them, it always works just the opposite. It causes their growth, their extension, and their expansion. But the point I want to emphasize again here, it was persecution that God used. I want to emphasize this. God used the persecution to move his people into phase two of his missionary program. The great persecution that broke out scattered all of the believers that were in Jerusalem, with the exception of the apostles, scattered them throughout, by no coincidence, Judea and Samaria. How wonderful. Scattered them now into Judea and Samaria. And I want to read again Acts 8, verses 4 to 8. And we're eventually going to be picking things up on page 86, if you're following in the notes, but I'm backtracking a little bit. Acts 8, verses 4 to 8. Those who had been scattered, that's all the believers from Jerusalem, preached the word wherever they went. I'm going to read that again. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. We didn't hear much about the believers in Jerusalem doing that hitherto. We heard about the apostles preaching and God confirming their message with great signs and wonders. We heard about Stephen preaching and his message being confirmed with signs and wonders. But now, all of the believers, as they're being scattered, they're going preaching the Word. And all that time, they had been in the church in Jerusalem. They've been fattened on the Word of God. They've been hearing wonderful uh, revelations and teachings from the apostles. But now God seems to say, it's time for you to get out there and to start ministering. The scriptures talk about God being like a mother eagle. And he finally stirs up the nest as a mother bird does when she senses that her young are old enough to fly, basically kicks them out of the nest. And they have to fly. And that's kind of what's going on here. God has now shaken the nest. He's forced them out of their comfort zone. But praise God, they went preaching the word. That's why you and I need to understand very clearly, we're not just filling our heads with knowledge when we listen to these Bible studies. We are being prepared by God because he wants to use every one of us to preach his word, to share the good news of the gospel. And who knows, there may be a Philip or a Stephen on the phone line tonight that God is preparing in the wings to do great and mighty things. And as they went preaching, we're told in verse 5 now, we come back to the second of the seven 
deacons that were chosen in Acts 6. We're now down to six of those seven because Stephen is dead. He's a martyr. He's gone to be with the Lord. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed, so there was great joy in that city. We talked last time about how difficult this was for the Jews to go to Samaria. There was a thousand-year racial divide between Jews and Samaritans, but the good news is the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ breaks down every racial wall. It breaks through every barrier. The gospel knows no race, no culture, no other kind of barrier. The gospel breaks through all of that. So now Philip has gone to Samaria preaching the word, preaching Christ with great results. Demons are coming out. People are getting healed. Miracles are taking place. The whole city is stirred up. And verse 8 we just read, there was great joy in the city. And as we often see in the book of Acts, whenever there's extension, expansion, the Word of God is being preached, God is moving by His Spirit, miracles, signs, and wonders are taking place, get ready, because a new wave of persecution and opposition is surely on the way. And that's where we pick it up tonight, from verse 9. Acts 8, verse 8, ended on this note, there was great joy in that city. But now there's a little bit of a shift. And I'm going to read from verse 9 all the way down to verse 25. Now, for some time, a man named Simon, not to be confused with Simon Peter, another Simon, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power, known as the great power. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. But when they, the people of Samaria, believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. This is getting really good. You can't make this stuff up. This is the word of God. Verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, 
they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in, <clears throat> in your heart. <clears throat> Excuse me. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon, the sorcerer, answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Now, this is a treasure trove, the portion that we've just read. All kinds of good stuff in these verses, and lots and lots of important, basic, doctrinal, foundational information that we need to pay close attention to. This portion of Scripture can help us with many, many questions, and I'm going to say many false doctrines that often arise in Christian circles. We'll get to that. First of all, let's talk a little bit about this man, Simon. He's called a sorcerer. He had practiced sorcery uh, or magic, witchcraft, I think all the terms could apply here, and he had great influence in Samaria. We, we, we cannot underestimate the influence that this man was having on the whole town, the whole city of Samaria. It says in verse 10, he had amazed, King James reads, bewitched all the people of Samaria. Now I know everybody knows what all means. He had amazed or bewitched all the people of Samaria. So this man had great power, great influence over all of Samaria. And it says, boasting that he was someone great. More about that in a moment. Let me say something here. If people, any people, if people don't worship the true God, and they aren't amazed at Him, they will find some other God to worship, and they will find something else to amaze themselves with. 
Let me repeat that. If people don't find the true God and enter into true worship of that God, and if they aren't daily amazed at that God, they'll find something else to worship. They'll find something else to amaze themselves with. And that's what's happening in our culture today. We have many, many, many people who don't know the Lord. They don't know the true God. They don't worship the true God. So, inevitably, because God made us in His image and likeness, we are born, we are created to worship. We'll find some other lesser false god to worship. In many parts of the world, they are physical idols, statues, etc. But in our part of the world, uh, although there are some groups here that still worship idols and statues, not so much here in America, we have more sophisticated gods, little g, idols, false gods that we worship. One of the biggest one in America is self. We worship ourselves. We place more emphasis on our own opinions, our own ideas, than on what God or anyone else might be trying to say to us. So, rather than be amazed at the God of heaven and earth, the God who created all things by his word, many, many people are now amazed with other things, lesser things. But make no mistake, man will always worship. He's created to be a worshiper, and you find this in the last book of the Bible. In the book of Revelation, in the final years of time before the great white throne judgment and all of that, during the great tribulation, uh, make no mistake, the people who still are here on the earth, they will be worshipers. Oh my goodness, the earth will be full of worship. Only one problem, they'll all be worshiping the wrong thing. They'll be worshiping Satan and his Antichrist. So man is destined to worship. He's destined to be amazed at something. And because in Samaria, they didn't know the true God, uh, they had a mixture of a little bit of religion, but a whole lot of demonic witchcraft. Here they are, amazed by this sorcerer, Simon. He had amazed them. He had bewitched them. And they were all worshipping him. This man is the divine power known as the great power. And this wasn't just some casual amazement. It goes on to say in verse 11, they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. So this guy is really the spiritual leader of Samaria. And it comes as no surprise because of all this witchcraft and demonic influence, go back to verses 5 to 8 that we read earlier, the whole city was full of demonic activity. No wonder, 
as Philip preached Christ and the word of God, we read, the crowds heard Philip, and they saw the miraculous signs he did. Uh, what did he do? Well, with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, not a few, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. It comes as no surprise that Samaria was filled with evil spirits, filled with sickness, and crippling disease. Why? We can trace it directly to Simon's witchcraft and sorcery. They didn't have the true God. They were under a great delusion. They were under great deception. And whenever Satan can get this kind of a stronghold over people, he's going to bring sickness, he's going to bring demonic oppression, and all kinds of diseases and strange uh, things on the people. He's not content just to let them go on in their amazement and their uh, following this sorcerer, Satan begins to dig his claws into the people and take them captive, oppressing them with sickness, disease, mental illness, and all the rest. So, the results of years of Simon's sorcery can be seen indirectly in the large numbers of people who needed deliverance from evil spirits, and needed healing from paralysis, from crippling diseases. Notice that. Verse 7 again. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. We can only imagine what this city looked like, but the devil had done a real number on Samaria. Cripples all over the, the city, paralytics everywhere, demon-possessed people roaming the streets, and along comes Philip preaching Jesus Christ, and all hell breaks loose. Demons are screaming out, people are getting healed right and left, as the Word of God finally reaches Samaria. Now, let's zero in on verse 12. After all these amazing miracles, the sick being healed, the demons being cast out, uh, people receiving the word of God, verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. I find this verse fascinating, and we need to pay close attention to it. It doesn't say anything about Philip preaching baptism. Now, in Acts 2, Peter specifically preached repentance, water baptism, and receiving the Holy Spirit. It's not explicitly stated that Philip talked about those things, but it is implicit, it's implied that he did. Why? Well, first of all, he preached 
the good news of the kingdom and the name of Jesus Christ. How had Jesus instructed his disciples to preach? Well, in the Great Commission, it includes baptizing, making disciples. So, Philip was very likely following that Great Commission in preaching the name of Jesus Christ. He was also preaching water baptism. They were baptized, both men and women. Obviously, he had spoken about baptism. Otherwise, they wouldn't have known anything about baptism. So, they're responding to what he obviously had taught them about water baptism. All throughout the book of Acts, we see this pattern. Repent, believe, take water baptism, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. With some exceptions, it's usually done in that order. When we get to Acts 10, the Gentiles first received the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, they were commanded by Peter to also take water baptism. Water baptism is an essential part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an essential part of the good news of the kingdom. And it is actually the believer's first logical response to the preaching of the gospel. We repent, we believe, and then we take water baptism. Now, just as Peter did on the day of Pentecost, urging them to take water baptism, the Samaritans very readily very willingly responded, as 3,000 did on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached that good news to them. They were obedient. Water baptism, I often teach, is our first step of obedience toward God and toward entering the kingdom of God. Repentance is turning away from our sin turning away from our old life, obedience is moving toward God. And this is our first step toward God in water baptism. Now, verses 14 to 17 are extremely important verses of Scripture. Study them and know them well, because they will help you answer a lot of questions that people have, and also help you to refute some rather common errors and false teachings. Not that we want to just argue and win debates, but this is a very critical point in understanding the gospel. And I want to read these verses again, 14 to 17. When the apostles in Jerusalem, remember, all the believers except for the apostles were scattered from Jerusalem by this great persecution. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. But news reaches the apostles in Jerusalem of Philip's ministry in Samaria and the great response to the word of God that has taken place there. So, Obviously, that news has reached Jerusalem, because we read, 
when the apostles in Jerusalem heard, they heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. Now stop there for a minute. If we didn't have the next portion of scripture, we might imagine uh, it would read something like, they rejoiced and gave thanks and praise to God that the word of God had finally reached Samaria. Well, I'm sure they did that, but that's not what it says. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they saddled up their horses. They sent Peter and John to Samaria. This is getting very interesting. Why? Why send Peter and John down to Samaria? Well, maybe to verify the news they'd heard, maybe to observe for themselves this great revival that has broken out in Samaria, but that's not why they're going. Verse 15, When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Why was it necessary for the apostles in Jerusalem to send Peter and John to Samaria? This is a very important question, which you and I need to understand. Why did they send Peter and John down to Samaria? Obviously, Philip had a great anointing. He had a powerful ministry. You can't cast out demons unless the Holy Spirit is upon you and in you. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God then you know the kingdom of God has come unto you. So the kingdom of God has already come to Samaria. The Holy Spirit is moving in great power in Samaria. Demons are coming out. Paralytics, cripples, all kinds of sick people are being healed. These are all signs of the Holy Spirit working and moving. Gifts of the Spirit were obviously operating through Philip the Evangelist. Why do we need to send Peter and John down there? Surely Philip can handle all this himself. He has a powerful ministry. He knows how to preach well. The people are responding to him. He's gaining many converts. They're all taking water baptism. What was he lacking? Why does he need for Peter and John to come down and help him? This is critical to understand. And this is why I'm going through this rather slowly tonight, because it is so important. As we learned way back in part two, where we talked quite a bit about the centrality of the apostles throughout the book of Acts, that's why 
King James calls it the Acts of the Apostles. From chapter 1 all the way to chapter 28, the, the Apostles are center stage. They're very, very important. Their ministry is vital to the church. Matter of fact, we learn there that Paul would explain later that the foundation of the church is Christ, the chief cornerstone, together with the apostles and prophets. The apostles first, the prophets second. They form the very foundation of the church. It was the job of the apostles to ensure that each and every church had the proper foundation, that they were founded on Christ and Christ alone and the Holy Spirit. So, it actually doesn't surprise me at all, knowing all the other scriptures in the New Testament, on the importance of the apostolic ministry, doesn't surprise me at all that Peter and John were sent down to Samaria. The foundation, even of the Samaritan church, depended on the apostolic ministry. God had given them that ministry, and Philip, as an evangelist, he obviously understood the distinction between an evangelist and an apostle. Very important. Philip was an evangelist. He was not an apostle. He's never called an apostle. And at this stage in the early church, the various ministries <clears throat> already had a clear understanding that within this so-called five-fold ministry listed in Ephesians 4.11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, in that order, in Ephesians 4.11, within that five-fold ministry, there is what we might call a division of labor. Each one has a specific function, has a specific job description, Sometimes there was overlap, but they also understood very clearly the boundaries or limitations of their particular ministry office. Let me explain that again. Philip was an evangelist. Peter and John were apostles. Both ministries are acknowledged in a number of places in the New Testament. However, the apostle, the prophet, are singled out repeatedly as being foundational to the church. The church must have a foundation. And the job of the apostles and prophets is to make sure that the church is properly founded on the one and only rock, which is Jesus Christ. So... When news reaches Jerusalem, the apostles in Jerusalem, that Philip is having this great evangelistic campaign in Samaria, they're hearing all the good reports of 
many converts, many people taking water baptism, demons being cast out, cripples and paralytics being healed. What do they do? They send apostles down to Samaria. Now, here's where it gets very interesting, and this is even more critical for every one of us to understand. What did Peter and John do when they got to Samaria? Philip didn't need them to help with water baptism. That's not what it says. Philip didn't need help casting demons out of people. He was doing a great job of that. Philip didn't need Peter and John to help him with the healing ministry. They had healing ministries, but so did Philip. But there's one thing that is clearly emphasized here. They came specifically to pray for the Samaritans to receive the Holy Spirit. Let me read verse 14 and 15 again. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, and we've already learned they were also being baptized, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. None of them. Word of God is very clear here. Because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. Any of them. For whatever reasons... Now, there's some mysteries here, which we don't fully understand. For whatever reason, as great and powerful as Philip's ministry was, there was a limit. God had placed a limit on what Philip was to do. He, up until this point, had not been able to bring any of them into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Only water baptism, only conversion, only a belief in Jesus Christ. Along come Peter and John, and the one thing they do is pray for these Samaritan converts to receive the Holy Spirit. The words are very uh, significant. They didn't Go down there and pray, Oh Lord, give these people the Holy Spirit. Give them, give them, give them. Please, we beg you, Lord, give them the Holy Spirit. No, they weren't praying for God to give them the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit was already given in Acts 2. They understood that. They prayed that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And we must make that distinction. Sometimes we go on and on, begging and begging and begging. Oh, God, give Joe the Holy Spirit. Lord, pour out your Spirit on Joe. And you might just hear the Holy Spirit whisper in your ear, I already did. He just needs to receive me. Pray that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I've put this in bold letters in your outline because it is so important. They prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not come upon any of them. 
they had simply been baptized. Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized. Now this is extremely important from a doctrinal standpoint. And please bear with me for a few moments as I get theological and doctrinal here. But this is an important point of doctrine. The Samaritans had believed in Jesus Christ. They had placed their full faith in Christ. They had received healing, they had received deliverance, and they had taken water baptism. The whole city was full of great joy. I mean, I don't know what you would call this. I call it a great revival. Revival had broken out in Samaria. But, and this is a big but, they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. This clearly refutes the popular teaching that is prevalent in so many denominations, so many Christian circles, and I'm not trying to be critical of anyone tonight, I'm just trying to rightly divide the word of truth, and that's what we're here for. This clearly refutes the popular teaching, I'm sure you've heard it, maybe someone listening tonight or listening to this recording in the future has been taught this. It clearly refutes the popular teaching that as soon as a person puts their faith in Christ, they get the whole package. They're automatically saved, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a done deal. There's nothing more to come. You got it all, my brother. Wrong, wrong, wrong. That is not biblical. That is not what the scriptures teach. And this one passage of scripture blows that teaching out of the water. They had been saved. They had been water baptized. They had been delivered. They had been healed. They had the joy of salvation in their lives. But they lacked an important experience, they had not yet been filled with the Holy Spirit. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is separate and distinct from being born again, being water baptized, being saved. They're not one and the same, and it is a false teaching that actually robs people of the great blessing of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, it is a false teaching to tell someone, as soon as you believed in Jesus, you automatically got the whole package. Now, maybe they did, but not necessarily. Some people, they get saved, they take water baptism, and they receive the Holy Spirit all in the same day. That's the way it should be. But it's not automatic. And it wasn't automatic for these Samaritans. Separate and distinct experience. They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. They needed Peter and John to come down, separate ministers, separate from Philip, needed to lay hands on them to assist them in receiving this gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Prior to Peter and John's visit, 
the Samaritans still lacked an important experience needed in their journey of faith. They needed to receive the Holy Spirit. Study these scriptures carefully, and I think you'll see that it is simply not true to make this blanket statement that theologically, as soon as a person believes in Jesus Christ, they also receive the Holy Spirit. It is not theologically correct. Two separate and distinct experiences. We receive Christ when we're born again. We receive the Holy Spirit when we're baptized in the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter 6 talks about the foundational doctrines of the faith. It talks about the doctrine of baptisms, plural. There are two baptisms, baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. We see them clearly here in Acts 8, separate and distinct. Baptism in water at the hands of Philip, baptism in the Holy Spirit at the hands of Peter and John. Every church, including the church in Samaria, mentioned in the book of Acts, was founded by apostles. I'll let that sink in for a minute. You might be thinking, wait a minute, Philip founded the church in Samaria. No, he didn't. Philip evangelized Samaria. Philip preached Christ in Samaria. Philip baptized them in Samaria, but the church didn't have a proper foundation yet. Church doesn't have a foundation until the people are filled with the Holy Spirit. Because, as you've heard me say many times throughout this study in the book of Acts, no Holy Spirit, no church. Church was born, founded, formed, on the day of Pentecost when they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. The Samaritan church is no exception. They needed the foundation of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. It was necessary that the apostles, Peter and John, go down to them and make sure that these Samaritan believers had that foundation in their lives. When Peter and John laid hands on on these Samaritans, they received the Holy Spirit. Verse 17 again, Then Peter and John, doesn't mention Philip, Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't say anything about Philip, but I can only imagine Philip was there rejoicing he wasn't, you know, feeling all jealous and who do these guys think they are coming down here and messing with my revival? I don't need them to come down here. He didn't have an attitude like that. Sad, but we often see that in modern Christian circles where insecure pastors, they get all bent out of shape because they can't be the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher in the church, and God sends somebody along to help them, and they get all jealous and want to get rid of the guy. We should welcome every ministry 
that we can possibly benefit from. We need all of these ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And no one man can possibly do it all. I think Philip, with great joy, embraced this visit by Peter and John, the apostles, and he was happy to see now these new converts had not only been saved, water baptized, delivered, and healed, but they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, let me draw your attention to one other important point. Let's go back uh, to Simon the sorcerer to see this for a minute. He's a very interesting character, and uh, we can only speculate about the sincerity of his faith and his following the apostles. Um, It says in verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Now, after Peter and John come down and lay their hands on the Samaritan believers and they receive the Holy Spirit, verse 18, let's read very carefully. When Simon saw, important word, when Simon saw, he saw something. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now let's pause for a second. What did he see? Doesn't say what he saw. But there was obviously some outward, visible, audible sign or evidence that as soon as these apostles laid hands on the Samaritan converts, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, the scriptures are silent. It doesn't say what he saw. But based on other scriptures, and this is what we must do when uh, something is implied, it's implicit in the scriptures, but it's not explicitly stated, We have to look at all the other scriptures and see if they help us come to a reasonable assumption or a reasonable conclusion. What did Simon see? Well, on the day of Pentecost, anyone watching would have seen the Holy Spirit coming upon the 120 in the upper room and immediately the evidence, the sign of that arrival of the Holy Spirit was they all spoke in other tongues. Very clear. That was the evidence that the Holy Spirit had come. Holy Spirit is invisible. You can't see Him. Simon didn't have eyes to see the Holy Spirit. He obviously saw some outward sign, manifestation, or evidence that the Holy Spirit was being given as Peter and John went around laying their hands on people. Now, some have speculated, maybe they started prophesying. That's possible. Maybe there were other 
manifestations of the Holy Spirit. That's possible. But he saw something. There was an outward manifestation that the Holy Spirit was coming upon each and every one of these Samaritan believers as Peter and John laid their hands on them. For me, the most reasonable solution is he heard them speaking in tongues just as had happened on the day of Pentecost. Can't prove it. You never will be able to prove it, but it's in perfect harmony with what other scriptures say. We'll see that again in chapter 10, and we'll see it again in chapter 19. So when you have three other uh, instances in the book of Acts, each of which shows the first outward evidence of the arrival of the Holy Spirit was in the speaking in tongues, it's fairly reasonable to assume that that's what Simon saw here. Now, let's follow this. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, what does Simon want to buy? We might think he offered them money so that he might receive the Holy Spirit. That's not what he's asking. It's very specific. He offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He wanted to do what Peter and John were doing. And let me take you back again to verse... 10. Well, even verse 9, talking about Simon. He had amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is the divine power, known as the great power. Beware, beware of any minister, any so-called prophet, great one, so-called apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Beware of anyone who comes boasting that he is someone great. Ooh, that's a red flag. Big red flag boasting that he was someone great. That should be an immediate warning that the devil is in the mix. The devil's not too far away from all of this. We may be seeing some amazing things happening, miracles, signs, wonders, but beware, it's the wrong spirit. Because the Spirit of Christ never comes boasting about anything. The true servant of God never comes boasting about himself. And obviously, this is the root behind Simon's so-called great ministry. It's all about 
self-exaltation. He had been boasting that he was someone great, and now we're going to have a further manifestation of that in this request. He was offering money to Peter and John, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice, it's still all about me. Give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. We need to be very, very careful, very, very careful about our motives in Christian ministry. And pardon me for going a little bit over here tonight, but I want to finish emphasizing this. Simon wanted to use the gift of God to advance his own agenda, to promote and exalt himself and to draw attention to himself. This is very dangerous. Be very, very careful of this kind of motivation. And let me tell you something. The heart is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked. This thing will try to work in every single one of us. Very subtle. But we start to want an anointing. We want the gift of prophecy, or we want to be able to lay hands on the sick, and they're instantly healed. But what is our motive? Is it a compassion for the sick? Is it a sincere desire to see Christ exalted, and people's suffering alleviated? Or do we want to use it as a platform to promote ourselves? Be careful. Pride comes in 10,000 different forms. It is a seven-headed monster. And it will even try to use the gift of God to advance our own name, our own agenda. Now, as I mentioned earlier, this Simon, he's a bit of a mystery. The scriptures say he believed... And he took baptism, and yes, he was astonished by the miracles that he saw God performing. There's never any mention that he received the Holy Spirit, and after seeing what Peter and John were able to do, that's what he wanted to buy. I want this ability. This will further enhance my greatness This will further enhance my following here in Samaria of people saying, I'm the great one. But Peter, oh, how I love these apostles. Man, they were full of the Holy Ghost and fire. What boldness they had. What discernment they had to see right through the sin, the the carnality of people, and get right to the heart of the matter. We saw that in Acts 5 when he rebuked Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit and they both dropped dead in the church. Here's Peter rebuking Simon openly and here's what he said to him. 
may your money perish with you. Wow. Peter could have collected a pretty good offering here if he hadn't said that. Uh, how much are you willing to give, Simon? I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll make a deal with you. No. May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God. <laughs> how ironic. The gift of God is free. You don't buy God's gifts with anything, let alone money. You thought you could buy the gift of God with money. This was a gift operating in Peter and John. The gift of laying their hands on other people to receive the Holy Spirit. Can't buy that with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right. Your heart is not right. And I think we can expand on that a little bit. His heart was proud. He had gotten used to being the great one, exalting himself, boasting himself of being somebody great. His heart was not humble. His heart was proud. It was not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. You know, all wickedness isn't in actions. Wickedness can come in the form of thoughts. Lofty thoughts about ourselves. Self-exalting visions of ourselves. Envisioning us having some great worldwide ministry. Uh, being on the TV and on the cover of Charisma Magazine, and all the people falling down at our feet. Repent of this wickedness in your heart, for I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. In his favor, Simon responded humbly, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. That's all we know about Simon. We don't know what happened to him after that. Hopefully he repented, but we don't know. It's not really clear just how sincere his faith had been, although the scriptures say he believed and he took baptism. Um, we're not sure how sincere that faith was. One commentator has written, quote, Simon was a professor, but not a possessor of salvation. That's interesting. He was a professor, but not a possessor. I don't know about you. I don't want to just profess this stuff. I want to possess it. I want salvation. I want a revelation of Christ. I don't want to just go around telling other people stuff that I don't possess. It seems, and again, I'm using the word seems, because we don't know for sure, it seems that Simon was just going through the motions so that he could continue to promote himself and his so-called ministry. This, I believe, is what was particularly wicked about Simon's sin. His pride and his self exaltation had now led him to the point where he was willing to buy 
pay money for the gift of God to advance himself, to promote himself, to boast himself, and draw more attention to himself. Here are his words again. Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Notice the me and the I. Give me so I. It was all about me, myself, and I. Well, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. There's something about that expression that doesn't sit well. It reminds me a little bit of Pharaoh kind of repenting after one of the plagues in Egypt, or King Saul sort of going through the motions of repentance uh, after he got caught in his sin. It doesn't say, oh my gosh, pray for me that God will forgive me, that God will change my heart, that I can get right with God. No, it's pray for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. (laughs) Didn't want anything bad to happen to him but not necessarily a sincere heart cry. Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me, as David prayed. In any event, Peter and John's work is done, and they leave and head back to Jerusalem. But it does say something interesting. When they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So they went throughout the length and breadth of Samaria, and continued to preach, no doubt also fulfilling the rest of their ministry, in proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming water baptism, and the receiving of the Holy Spirit. The apostles, I think, now realized that they had moved into phase two of Acts 1.8. The commission has now taken them beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. And we're going to close for now at that point. It's a nice breaking point. And next time, we shift back in our emphasis to Philip once again. God's not done with Philip yet. He has some more amazing things uh, for him to do out in the middle of the desert. While this great revival is going on in Samaria, suddenly Philip is snatched out of Samaria, taken out, into the middle of the desert, because the Lord has need of him. This is great stuff. This is, as I mentioned at the beginning tonight, these are some important chapters in the book of Acts, particularly chapters 8, and certainly when we get to chapter 9, 
and we return our attention to Saul of Tarsus, soon to become Paul the Apostle. Let's close here for tonight. Much more next time. Father, we thank you for the living Word of God. What a blessing to study your Word. Lord, it's like opening a treasure chest. You keep unfolding and you keep revealing more and more truth to us. There's no bottom to it. There's no end to it. These are the unsearchable riches of Christ. God, I thank you for opening up the scriptures to us, even tonight, taking us deeper, showing us marvelous things out of your word. And Lord, I pray for every listener, I pray for every participant in this Bible study, that you would stir us up, you would anoint us, you would fill us with the Holy Spirit, you would fill us with the Word of God, you would prepare each one of us for the ministry that you have called us to. And Lord, you've called all of us to preach your Word, to preach the good news of the Gospel to every creature, to go into all the world with the good news of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would prepare each and every one of us to be able to rightly divide the word of truth, teaching, preaching, baptizing, doing all that you've called us to do as you prepare your church for your soon and glorious return. God, we thank you for the Holy Spirit leading and guiding us into all truth, convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Lord, I pray for each and every one tonight that you would bless them, make them a blessing, give them boldness as you gave boldness to Peter, John, Philip, Stephen, and all these believers in the early church, even when they were persecuted, They didn't hide in a cave somewhere. They went preaching your word. And you honored that word with signs, wonders, and miracles. Do the same with each and every one of us. 